This is an ABC podcast. It was a sensational news story, but one you might have missed, distracted as we all were by the dreadful bushfires and the arrival of the new year. The fugitive former head of the Japanese automaker Nissan, Carlos Ghosn, has given an impassioned account of his time under arrest since he jumped bail in Japan to head to Lebanon in a private jet. I was presumed guilty before the eyes of the world and subject to a system whose only objective is to coerce confessions, secure guilty pleas without regard to the truth. On the 29th of December, one of the car industry's most powerful figures fled from Japan where he was awaiting trial, apparently hidden in a musical equipment box. I'm Kerry Phillips, and in this Rear Vision, we'll hear two stories in one, because the story of Carlos Ghosn is very much the story of the global car industry. Over the past 30 years, there's been consolidation in the industry, lately often in the form of alliances. In 1999, the French car company Renault teamed up with Nissan. The Japanese car maker was struggling with debts of over $20 billion. Carlos Ghosn, who'd already made a name for himself at Renault, was brought in to save Nissan from bankruptcy. David Bailey is Professor of Business Economics at the Birmingham Business School. Carlos Ghosn was an iconic figure in the automotive industry. So he was born in the mid-1950s in Brazil, also having French and Lebanese nationality. He studied in Lebanon and then in France at the very famous Ecole Polytechnique, graduating in the 1970s. His career first started at the French tire maker Michelin, and he spent 18 years in various divisions, moving around Michelin, becoming increasingly important. He was, I think, aware that the top job there might elude him. So he was headhunted and moved to Renault in the mid-1990s and was soon put in charge of their South American division where he did very well. And he, he quickly grew in importance at Renault, developing a reputation for cutting costs by reducing the workforce, by standardizing components, focusing on new models and centralizing research and development. So he got this nickname, Le Cost Killer, although he, he kind of resented that, saying success in business is about more than that. But then when Renault took over Nissan in the late 1990s by taking a 40% stake, he was kind of parachuted in to take charge. And at the time, Nissan was very heavily in debt. It lost money for much of the last decade. And he really embarked on a big restructuring that involved shedding about one in seven jobs, closing factories, very much against the kind of Japanese way of doing things. And he essentially turned Nissan around under Renault control and became this iconic figure in Japan, there even being comics about him there. So he became a very respected figure in the car industry for his ability to turn the firm around and kind of successfully held together for a long time this Renault-Nissan alliance, which later enlarged to take on Mitsubishi, against all the odds, really. Alliances don't tend to hold together in the car industry. He held it together, really, through force of personality. So he was an unusual figure within the industry? He was a very unusual figure within the industry. He spoke several languages. He had good diplomatic skills. He travelled extensively. And he did something which others were unable to do. So alliances in the car industry often didn't work. They became unstuck. Mergers and takeovers often have a, a history of failure. And so in that sense, he became seen as a kind of unique figure. At the same time, I think there were problems that were being stored up. 
as often happens in the car industry, the Renault-Nissan alliance went for growth. And often when companies focus on growth, they mess things up. You know, we saw that with Toyota and the recall issue. We saw it with Volkswagen and the emissions scandal. We saw it with Renault-Nissan in terms of his effort really to become one of the biggest car companies in the world, which the alliance has, has effectively become, but through very rapid growth in America. And that led to some pretty unprofitable investments. It led to cutting of margins. And that was starting to store up some sizable problems. I think as well, the extent of the integration didn't go as far as many had hoped for. So whilst they shared some of the technology, what's called the platforms that underpin cars, and some components sourcing, the buying of bits, the integration hadn't gone that far. So costs were probably a lot higher than many had hoped for. And so I think towards the end of his reign there, he thought that they needed to integrate more. There was speculation that that might involve a full-blown takeover by Renault of Nissan. People at Nissan, including, I think, the Japanese government, were unhappy about that because after the turnaround, it had been Nissan which had been delivering most of the profit to the alliance, even though it was Renault which owned most of Nissan. So there was this very unbalanced relationship and i think that's where things became unstuck well the chair of one of the world's biggest car manufacturers the nissan renault group has been arrested in japan carlos goen who heads up a japanese french car alliance between renault mitsubishi and nissan saved nissan from near bankruptcy almost 20 years ago but an internal investigation alleges he misused company money and underreported his earnings by that more than 40 million dollars on the 19th of November 2018, Tokyo District Prosecutors arrested Carlos Ghosn shortly after his plane touched down in Japan. What were the charges? Ben Dooley is the Japan business correspondent for the New York Times. Well, I mean, it gets a little complex, but uh, just to put it simply, a financial wrongdoing. He was arrested four times and charged four times, obviously. And the charges broke down into two broad categories. One was hiding his compensation. The government said that he had hidden his compensation from, from shareholders and made false reports to the Tokyo Stock Exchange. And the second kind of category, broader category of charges was profiting from Nissan. So using Nissan's resources and, and funds for his own personal profit. Were these charges the result of an investigation by Japanese authorities, or was it something that had come about through an internal investigation within Nissan? Well, it's sort of a combination of the two. Nissan's story of what happened is that in 2018, in the spring of 2018, that Mr. Ghosn had potentially been involved in some improprieties. And according to Nissan, they took that information to prosecutors in Japan, who urged the company to begin an internal investigation. A lot of that information was handed over to the Japanese prosecutors by Nissan, and then the prosecutors cooperated with Nissan to further investigate the claims against Mr. Ghosn. So the investigation could not have been done without extensive cooperation by Nissan with the Japanese prosecutors. Nissan wasted no time sacking Carlos Ghosn, whose ordeal within the Japanese justice system was just about to begin. Well, he was arrested at Haneda Airport on November 19th, 2018, and he was taken to a detention centre in Tokyo where he was held for more than 100 days. 
And the, the way the Japanese legal system works, effectively, prosecutors can hold a suspect for 23 days without arresting them, at which point they have to decide whether they're going to arrest or not. And what often happens in Japan is that prosecutors will sort of stack charges. So they'll wait 20 days and they'll charge someone with a crime and then they'll re-arrest them, wait 20 days and then charge them with another crime, which is exactly what, what happened to Mr. Gon. He had difficulty obtaining bail, which is it's not unusual in Japan. He got out on bail after, I believe it was 100 days, and then was subsequently rearrested again and kept for, I believe, another month, at which point he was released on, on bail a second time. And when he was in the detention center, he says that, and his, his lawyers say that the prosecutors interrogated him without a lawyer for between 7 and 11 hours a day. He was kept in solitary confinement. He didn't have a blanket. He wasn't allowed to shower more than once or twice a week. So the conditions were fairly harsh. In Japan, uh, I think it's not uncommon for anyone who's arrested to be treated in this fashion. The Japanese justice system enjoys a singular statistic, a 99% conviction rate. Dave Walsh is professor in criminal investigation at De Montfort University in Leicester. The Japanese police are quite a conservative police force and the criminal procedure requires them to do a number of tasks. Their tasks are around not only gathering the facts of the case, which is probably pretty commonplace or should be commonplace to all police forces and criminal investigators around the world, but their tasks also for the purpose of the court is to understand motivation for their commission of the crime, so to try to find the reasons why they committed the crime. One of the effects of this, as I understand it, is that it propels investigators to try and seek confessions, which is always difficult because it assumes, of course, that the person is guilty. And in this and in the other case, this is not always clear. Why is that the object? Why is the object to find out why a person might have committed a crime? The Japanese courts, when deciding upon the appropriate sentence, they see that as having the full facts of the case. A person did it, but why did they do it? And of course, that can abate what might have been a stiffer penalty, stiffer sentence, because of the, say, mitigating reasons. So in a way, the Japanese system is predicated on the fact that once you get into the court, it's not up to the prosecutor to prove your guilt in court the way it is in, the, say, the Australian or the British system. Exactly. Do many cases go to court without the person having confessed? It's certainly much, much less than in other countries. The confession is seen as the queen of evidence, or in some cases the king of evidence, but whichever you can see the importance attached to the confession. In the West, we're used to white-collar lawbreakers, especially senior executives in big organisations, being treated somewhat differently from your common criminal. But how is white-collar crime regarded in Japan? Luke Nottage is a professor of law at the University of Sydney Law School. Well, this is an interesting aspect of the going case for me, because as you say, white-collar crime isn't often, and certainly successfully prosecuted in many countries, even developed economies, if you think of the global financial crisis and how few people actually got jailed. Whereas a good aspect of Japanese criminal justice system is that prosecutors 
feel that it's their professional duty to also go after white-collar crime and go after quite high-profile, well-connected individuals, even well-connected politicians. The famous case involving a senior LDP politician. Prosecutors went after him. No one was expecting this godfather to be prosecuted. But in white-collar crime, we've also seen, for example, a high-flying young very initially seeming successful CEO, Hodier, developed a big company 15 years ago. He was he was eventually prosecuted for securities law violations. Actually, he's been in the media saying, oh, Goen's getting the same treatment as me, uh, <laughs> uh, but I couldn't uh, afford to run away. Uh, I don't think he quite said that, but, but it's an example of prosecutors going after white-collar crime as well. The key point about the overall Japanese criminal justice system, which has been well reported in the media and now being sort of debated on both sides, is the fact that once prosecutors bring their cases, they achieve a 99% conviction rate on average. But it means that if they are sure, as they see it, of securing a conviction, they will even go after white-collar criminals, alleged criminals, even if they know it's going to be hard to get the evidence and nail the case. In late April last year, Ghosn was finally released, having posted about $20 million in bail. He had to hand over his three passports and there were significant restrictions on what he could do. He was in something like house arrest, but he was free to move around Tokyo. He traveled with his daughters who came to visit. Prosecutors had placed cameras in front of his house that tracked his movement or his comings and goings, but he had dinner parties and people came over to visit. The one condition that was considered, I think, fairly onerous and unfair by many was that he wasn't able to meet with his wife. So after April, from that time on, he was forbidden to have any contact with his wife at all. He only spoke with her, her twice on Skype or something. I'm not sure exactly what, what app they used for about a total of two hours. And the reason for that ostensibly was prosecutors said that he could conspire with her to tamper with witnesses or evidence. But, you know, I mean, he argued that if he wanted to do that, he could do it with, with anyone. I mean, any of these people who he was meeting with freely. So why prevent him from meeting with his wife? And I think his feeling, and many people agree, was that it was a pressure tactic that was intended to try to get him to confess to his alleged crimes. You're listening to Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips on Radio National RN. This is the story of Carlos Ghosn, the celebrated car industry chief who rescued Nissan from bankruptcy and took his auto alliance to the top before falling foul of Japanese authorities over allegedly underreporting his income and spending company money on personal expenses. The former boss of the car company Nissan has fled Japan, where he was facing trial over allegations of financial misconduct. Carlos Ghosn has succeeded in slipping out of Japan. Even his own defence team have been left dumbfounded. We didn't know anything about it. It's a complete surprise. We still have all his passports. A BBC report on Carlos Ghosn's flight from Japan. What's known about his sensational escape? The basic idea is that he walked out of his house and there is footage of him doing that, leaving his house. And he walked down the street to a nearby hotel. And we have footage of, of that from the Japanese authorities. At the hotel, he, he met with two men and he 
went with those men to Osaka by bullet train. And in Osaka, he entered a hotel. After this, it gets a little hazy, but he went into the hotel and he never left, basically. The two men came out by themselves with a box. We believe he was in the box. The box was for holding audio equipment, so speakers and that sort of thing. And the box was taken to the airport in Osaka. And it was taken through a private jet terminal, put on a private jet, and then the jet took off and flew to Turkey. It landed in Turkey. And then, according to Turkish authorities, he got the plane in Turkey, boarded the plane to Lebanon, and then arrived in, in Beirut a couple of hours later. I was presumed guilty before the eyes of the world and subject to a system whose only objective is to coerce confessions, secure guilty pleas without regard to the truth. I have come to learn that my unimaginable ordeal over the past 14 months is the result of a handful of unscrupulous, vindictive individuals at Nissan, at the Latam and Watkins law firm, with the support of the Tokyo Prosecutor Office. A week after his escape, Carlos Ghosn held a press conference in Beirut. Speaking for nearly three hours to more than a hundred journalists, he passionately protested his innocence, claiming he was set up a victim of a corporate coup. Benduli was there for the New York Times. It's hard as an outside observer to say with any certainty what led to his downfall. Nissan denies the idea that the this this merger with Renault was what was behind it. I mean, they would say, and the prosecutors would say the same, that you know the reason why Mr. Gunn was arrested is because he had done wrong, that he had engaged in these acts of financial wrongdoing, and that was the reason that he was arrested. Now, Mr. Gunn, if you listen to his story, he says that the main reason, this was a corporate coup against him, and the main reason for the coup was that people were afraid that he would effectively make the company, make Nissan French. I think there's probably some truth to both accounts, but it's really very hard to say. There were tensions emerging, I think, for a number of reasons. Firstly, his effort to really grow market share in the United States, they kind of started to store up some big issues, some unprofitable investments, I think, big discounting of cars, big fleet sales in America that then resulted in declining resale values of the car in the secondhand market. So there were kind of issues starting to come up. At the same time, it's thought that he was looking for further integration. Now, at the time they were talking to Fiat, my own best guess, we don't really know, is that he was looking for some sort of restructuring whereby Fiat would come into the equation, into the alliance, and there would effectively be a takeover of Nissan. Now, we don't really know what happened, but I think it is plausible that at that point, Nissan executives, who were unhappy anyway about the nature of the relationship, effectively engineered a palace coup to take him out. So remember that in the run-up to this, there was this very unbalanced relationship in the alliance whereby Renault had over 40% of Nissan shares. They also had voting rights and could appoint key directors. Nissan, meanwhile, only had 15% of Renault shares with no voting rights. And yet, until relatively recently, where Nissan's done very badly, before then, Nissan was delivering most of the profit to the alliance. The other factor, I think, which was causing some concern is that the French government has a 15% stake in Renault and is seen as quite influential. So there's this unbalanced relationship. 
at some point in the future, I think they may have to reconsider rebalancing that, whether that would involve the French government giving up its stake to allow Nissan to have a bigger stake is an interesting question. But the French government doesn't want to do that. It sees Renault as a strategically important company. In recent years, Mazda and Toyota, Honda and General Motors, VW and Ford have all announced joint projects. David Bailey says alliances between car-making companies like the ones that Ghosn built are critical to the future of the industry. The car industry is going through a very significant transition away from relying on petrol and diesel increasingly towards electric cars and in the future autonomous cars. And I think we'll see more change in the car industry over the next decade than in the previous 100 years. What's becoming increasingly important is scale. So companies have got to be big in order to generate the profit to put into research and development and developing new products. So developing genuinely new cars is very expensive. You know, developing the technology that underpins the car could cost a car company anything up to a billion US dollars, you know, huge amounts of money. So every time they develop a new technology to underpin the car, they're effectively taking a big bet on the future. In order to then recover the costs of that development, to deliver a profit, to put back into research and development and paying shareholders, you need to sell a lot of cars. Now, that means that you've got to share that technology, that platform across different brands. Think Renault, Nissan, Mitsubishi, and also across different models. So increasingly, the industry is about developing the underlying technology platform, whether that's involving petrol, diesel or electric or all three in the future, and then trying to recoup as much of that as possible through very big scale. So I think increasingly we're going to see some mega mergers in the industry. We're seeing that at the moment between Peugeot and Fiat in an attempt to get scale. We see it, for example, in the Volkswagen business where you've got lots of brands like Volkswagen, Audi, Seat, Skoda, all sharing the same underlying technology. And increasingly, I think we're going to have to see it at Renault, Nissan, Mitsubishi with the same technology shared. I mean, things are getting so critical. Even some of the biggest players think Volkswagen and Ford are having to collaborate on the new electric technologies that are coming in the future. Ford lagging behind. It's essentially paying to play with Volkswagen technology. What might happen now to the legal case against Carlos Ghosn in Japan? Could he be tried in absentia? It's not entirely clear what will happen. It doesn't seem that any definitive decision has been made. Apparently still negotiating with Lebanon over possible extradition. Lebanon doesn't extradite its citizens, so that seems like a very unlikely outcome. But they may be able to come to some kind of understanding about having a, a trial in, in Lebanon, which is a hope that Gohn has voiced. So it's not quite clear yet what, what is going to happen. Only thing I can say for sure is that one of Mr. Gohn's associates, Greg Kelly, who was arrested at the same time as he was in November, is still here in Japan awaiting trial. And uh, it's very likely that he will be tried on some of the same charges that Mr. Gohn was, was accused of aiding Mr. Gohn in hiding the full extent of his compensation. So when that trial goes through, we'll perhaps get some sense of Mr. Ghosn's guilt or innocence. I mean, since he himself will almost certainly never stand trial in, in Japan, I think that's kind of the best we're going to get in terms of, I guess, of having a judgment made against him. It may be the case that Mr. Kelly is found innocent, in which case Mr. Ghosn will be at least partially vindicated. You know, it may be the case that he's found guilty, in which case, I guess, Mr. Ghosn's decision to flee to Lebanon will look perhaps a little more suspicious than it does at the moment. 
For the time being, the deposed auto-executive could be stranded in Lebanon. Interpol has issued a red notice for his arrest. What are Carlos Ghosn's options now? It's hard to say. There is an Interpol red notice out on him, which could make it difficult for him to travel. It's basically just a request for authorities in other countries to cooperate with the Japanese police and arrest him if he shows up. The places he could go, he's a citizen of Brazil, he's a citizen of France, and France doesn't extradite its citizens. But the complication there is that he's also potentially facing charges in France related to his tenure as the chairman and CEO of Renault. I think no decision has been made yet about whether he will be charged or not, but there's an investigation into some of his spending there on a party at Versailles. So it's difficult, I think, for him to leave the country for the time being and maybe for many years. It is important for me to emphasize that I'm not above the law and I welcome the opportunity for the truth to come out and to have my name vindicated and my reputation restored. I did not escape justice. I fled injustice and persecution, political persecution. Could the former car industry titan ever make a comeback? Carlos Ghosn had a fantastic reputation in the car industry before all the issues blew up in Japan. Now, if that legal situation is sorted out, could he ever return to the car industry? Possibly. He has a great reputation in terms of cost-cutting, um, in terms of looking ahead into the future. One of the interesting things that he did at Renault-Nissan, for example, was really invest very heavily in electric technology, way ahead of many other mainstream rivals. He was coming under a lot of criticism for that, but actually it turned out he was right. It was the right sort of thing to do and, and the right prediction of where the industry would go. So I think he's still got a lot to bring to the industry, whether or not his reputation is now so tarnished by what has happened, he would ever be taken on by a big company. That's a different issue, I think. I can't comment on whether or not Carlos Ghosn is guilty of the crimes that he's been accused of. What I think is plausible is that there was effectively a coup against him in Nissan perhaps with the involvement of the Japanese government, I don't know. But I do think it is a, a plausible story that effectively he was taken out by the Nissan side of things because they were concerned about a full-blown takeover. Where that leaves him in the future, I think, is an open question because I still think he, he could bring a great deal to car companies. Could he ever make a potential comeback in some sense? I could see him playing a role in the car industry in the future if his legal position is sorted out. From my point of view, there is another part here in terms of can Renault-Nissan hang together in his absence? Whether or not Renault-Nissan holds together after Carlos Ghosn, I think is a very big question. We've got these tectonic plates that are moving in the car industry. So it's clear that increasingly car companies need big scale to, to develop the new technologies that will be needed. Now, on the one hand, Renault-Nissan haven't really integrated that much. So they could go a lot further to remove costs, to share technologies and share platforms. But there seems a lot of resentment on the Japanese side in terms of doing that. Now, Carlos Ghosn held it together through the force of his personality. They're going to have to find another way of keeping this going. There's a really big job to be done there in trying to get the companies to operate together, to share technologies, share platforms, find ways to reduce costs. I certainly think there's a pressure on them to do that because 
if you break that alliance up, they become quite small firms and they're going to find it increasingly difficult to compete with the really big giants. And whilst all of this has been going on, Renault had been previously talking to Fiat. Well, that was eventually called off after intervention by the French government. But Fiat are now teaming up with Peugeot. And I think that sends a bit of a shock to Renault, Nissan, Mitsubishi in the sense that other players are increasingly teaming up. They perhaps need each other more than ever. So the pressure is on to find some way to make this alliance work. They've got to figure out a way to do that. David Bailey, Professor of Business Economics at the Birmingham Business School. The other guests were Ben Dooley, the Japan business correspondent for the New York Times, Professor Dave Walsh from De Montfort University, and Professor Luke Nottage from the University of Sydney Law School. Isabella Tropiano is the sound engineer for this rear vision. Bye from Kerry Phillips. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.